serves. This is Sir Gene with your morning update in the afternoon. Well, good morning or afternoon or evening or whichever it is right now when you're listening. Today, I don't have a guest, but it's been a little while since I put out an episode, so I wanted to get an episode out there, but also kind of fill you in on some thoughts that I have and some things that are coming up. I will be recording a couple of more interview episodes probably in about a week or so. And those should be interesting. These are not my sort of typical interviews of people with similar political thoughts. One is actually going to be an interview with uh, Buzzsprout, which is a follow-up to an interview I did uh, over a year ago with the, um, the same person in that company. I don't think he's the CEO, but he is, I think, one of the founders. And I wanted to kind of go through, after a year of experience with the company, ask him some questions as well as get some more insight on what their plans are. I'm still very happy with Buzzsprout. It is definitely a full-service company, unlike some of the other podcast hosting solutions. And I'm, I think I'm paying 20 bucks or 25 bucks a month, something like that for them, which is, I know, more than some other hosting companies as well. But they really make things simple and one-click. And the less work I have to do producing podcasts, the happier a person I'm going to be. The other interview is going to be with a Gen Z person who is a kid of a friend of mine. And what I wanted to do is just kind of ask a lot of the similar questions that we've been talking about, the old farts like me, that I've talked about with Darren and with Ben and other folks. And see what somebody from Gen Z is thinking. I'm I'm very curious because my impression of Gen Z from about six, seven years ago was I thought, okay, this generation feels like it's growing up way more conservative than the millennials. So things are probably going to be pretty good. But there's also been a lot of not so good stuff that I've seen about Gen Z as well. And that has, I think, more culturally to do with what's been going on in that generation. And the fact that they're still young and impressionable during COVID and the two years that that kind of screwed up, I don't think did them any favors either. So looking forward to that interview. That'll be a fun one. Hopefully we have plenty of time so I can ask a multitude of questions. And not to say that this person speaks for the whole generation by any means. People only speak for themselves generally, but, but it will nonetheless be an opportunity to have somebody that, that I'm recording of that age group, meaning somebody that's in, I think he's 20 right now. So still very much a kid. Although when I was 20, I very much thought I was an adult as I'm sure everybody else does. All right. So that's the stuff coming up. What's, what's new? What, what are my thoughts? A uh, few things. First of all, McCarthy having trouble becoming the speaker of the house. So I think this is a great thing, but it also is a bit of a predictive of potential negative outcomes thing. What I mean by that is I hate the fact that every year for the entirety of the year, people that are libertarians, conservatives, or just populists in general keep complaining about the statists out there, the uniparty, the government that just seems to do things for its own benefit and not for the benefit of the people that are electing people. And then as soon as elections come, everybody still votes for their guy, who is generally more on the uniparty side. 
there are a fairly small percentage of people that are currently in office that don't align with the Uniparty. And that's a, that's a problem. I remember, and I've talked about this, I remember literally writing an article in high school that talked about the solution to the political issues, and this is way back in the 80s, that the solution to political issues should include a limit on the number of terms that senators and congressmen can serve. And my thoughts at the time were pretty similar to what they are today. Two terms for Senate, three terms for Congress. That's it. You do not want to have lifelong politicians like Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell that have spent the entirety of their adult lives, or Joe Biden, for Christ's sake, he was the youngest senator ever elected at the time of his election. And so his entire job for his whole adult life has been politics. I don't think that's good. I don't think that's healthy because politics, unlike most other jobs whose goal is to create the same product, but better and more efficiently as time goes on, politics should represent the views of the populace. And the view of the populace both changes over time and needs to have a connection to its past at all times. And I don't think politicians are financially incentivized to actually carry out that requirement. Unfortunately, because politicians can create their own incentive, in, let me get this word out, incentivization structure, they tend to incentivize things for themselves that focus on them earning more money. I don't believe there's been a single senator to have been elected who was not a millionaire when they were elected who hasn't become a millionaire during their tenure in Senate. I, I read this a number of years back, so maybe it's not a true thing, but I, I have a hard time envisioning anyone who didn't do that. Even people that were one-time, one-term senators like Barack Obama ended up becoming millionaires over the course of six years. So I think that this idea that you go to a national political office in order to become rich, unfortunately, is what's driving people to get elected. And it has a lot less to do with how good of a job they're going to do representing the people that elected them. Now, I know one of my co-hosts, Ben, would argue that, that people shouldn't be electing senators anyway. The senators are supposed to be elected by the local state congresses as a representative of the state political bodies. I don't think that's a good idea either, because knowing how politicians actually work, you would effectively be creating a one level removed from the populist form of government, the government of the EU which no actual European votes for. The entire government of the country of the European Union, which is made up of the states, their government is not elected by the populace. That government is elected by the legislatures of the states. They, everybody sends representatives, and then of those representatives, they, they vote and elect a, a president. So not really for that idea. I, the super simple solution that I was right all those years ago, and I'm still right on today. 
is to simply impose arbitrary term limits. And what I mean by arbitrary is they're not tied to performance. Somebody could be a great senator for two terms or somebody could be a shitty senator for two terms. The point is they can't be a senator for a third term. And this is a good thing. And people always point to people like Rand Paul or Ron Paul before that. I was like, well, what, you want to lose that guy's ability? Yes, I do. Yes, because if we had term limits, there would be an opportunity for a lot more Rand Pauls to get into office because there is no incumbent. Race between multiple parties, even if it's two, but ideally three or four or more, but even if it's just two parties, a race between two parties with no incumbent, because the outgoing incumbent has maxed out their term, would be a great thing. It would put both people on equal standing, and it would be a lot more about appealing to the people in your district and coming up with things that represent them as your platforms than it is to simply say, well, you vote for me, or that evil party is going to get in, that bad guy is going to get in. Like so many politicians right now, and on both Republican and Democrat side, literally run on the you don't want the other guy platform. They're not running for anything. They're running against the bad guys. And of course, the bad guys are whoever the other party is. It, it depends on who's running, right? So it is a it's a very problematic form of government that we have with unlimited terms. I think the idea that we're taught anyway about George Washington being the person that created this concept of a president should only serve two terms, unfortunately, that was never extended to other offices like the Senate. And you think about it, president serves two terms, that's eight years. The senator, two terms for a senator would be 12 years. 12 years is a long time, over a decade, in one job. The idea that we have people that have been in the same job for 30 or 40 years is ridiculous. Now, you combine that with the special privileges that these people have, like giving themselves raises, making immunity for themselves from prosecution for anything that is said on the chamber floor, doesn't matter what's said, you can't prosecute for it, like creating special uh, exemptions for themselves for being able to use non-public information to buy stocks and to trade and be able to make money effectively because they have insider knowledge that other people would actually go to prison for being doing trades if they had. Everybody else is not allowed to use insider knowledge to do trades. The politicians are. I'm talking about the federal branch here, obviously. So if we can limit the duration it solves so many other problems. And the fact that this is such a simple, straightforward thing, I think is makes it a lot more practical. But it's also never, ever, ever talked about in the media because the politicians are all very much in it for life. They don't want a different job when they get out. They want to have the same job forever. And so... I've certainly heard arguments saying, yes, that may be true, but you'll never have politicians voting for their own terms. Well, guess what? You will if that's one of their campaign promises. And then all you need to do is to get to that magic number of a majority of politicians that had in their campaign promise. And again, I don't care if they're liberals or conservatives or anything in between. 
that like this should just be a universal issue for everybody in every party is will you pledge to vote for term limits when the vote comes up and even if we if we know that that vote is going to be a losing vote because only 10 or 20 or 50 of the people in congress have agreed to make this pledge. It doesn't matter. You got to start somewhere because that number will grow if more people put pressure on it. Now, the other way to do this, which is, I think, a more difficult way, is to enforce term limits by not voting for the guy that you support for anything over the second term that they've run for senators or the fourth term for House members. And by the way, four, four terms for House would be eight years as well, just like the presidency. So that's something most people are not willing to do because they assume the other guy, the guy that's running against their guy, isn't going to have people doing that. So it's like, well, why would I not vote for the guy that represents my views? And then I do vote, or then the, the other side will have the guy that represents their views that'll run for office. That's, you know, it's just a way to not get me in there. Well, that's blame, I guess, blame the people voting in the primaries. That, that's the other person. Occasionally, there are unchallenged primaries. That certainly happens where everybody just assumes the guy that's in office is going to get in, so why bother running anybody against them? But quite often, you actually do have primaries that have challengers, and those challengers most of the time get shut down. They don't really end up winning. So I guess that I think it's a harder way to do it than simply passing a law that says you can't run more than X number of terms. Now, we did this for the president after FDR basically became the dictator of the U.S. with four terms in a row, and that was a horrible precedent, and I think enough people recognize it that they codified that, no, you can't do that, that the original gentleman's agreement for two terms of president was the correct number of terms, and then no future president should serve more than two. But I just think they stopped short at not making that same exact amount of terms for the senators as well. So hopefully that kind of conveys my thoughts. Uh, part of the problem of inability to drain the swamp is we could have a self-draining swamp valve, and it's called term limits. And too many people get scared by the boogeyman of, ooh, if we have term limits, then your guy's going to lose and the other guy's going to win. You don't want that, do you? Aren't you better off having the same guy represent you for 40 years, but he's your guy. He's going to vote the way that you do. He likes the way that you're thinking. That's the problem. The swamp is the swamp. The swamp acts mainly in its own interest. And we see this with the, the number of people, including Trump, incidentally, and Marjorie Taylor Greene that are perfectly willing to vote for McCarthy. Or, well, Trump's not voting, but endorse McCarthy. I think it's a drastic shift for both those people. I think this is the nail on the head for Trump, frankly. I've said for a while that he ought not to be run because he carries too much baggage, not to mention his age. I am sick and tired of grandparents running for office for president. Fuck that shit. I'm almost that age myself. And these people have just never let up. So I don't, I don't really, I just don't need another person in there 
70s or 80s ever running for office in my lifetime. And that may not be very long at this point. I'm getting up there, but but it's just ridiculous. We need more people that are like John F. Kennedy's age, like in their 50s. People that have lived in life long enough to be able to see the impact of their decisions and the decisions of others, but young enough that they're not thinking like an old person on the edge of death, which is what I think both um, Biden and Trump have a tendency to think. I think this was reflected in Trump by the absolutely piss poor staffing that he had in when he was in office. He literally hired and brought in all the wrong people because he, you know, he's delegating. He was, he was making too many decisions via other people, whether it was Jared or whether it was uh, Ivanka or whether it was just other people that he brought in. I feel like uh, an awful lot of the, the negative aspects of the Trump presidency had to do with bad hiring choices. And I don't think that he's always sucked at hiring for his whole life. I think he's progressively gotten worse at it as he's gotten older. I don't care if he doesn't sleep, if he feels energetic. He still has an awful lot of old grandpa characteristics about him. And I don't like that. We, we just don't need it. And, and this idea that, oh, well, you can't be ageist. Well, fuck that shit. You need to take the totality of the person for a job as important as a president. And I think age matters. I don't know if I would go so far as to put a law in that also limits presidency with a top age. So you can't be, what is it, under 40? But I can't remember. I'd have to look it up. But I believe it's, you can't be under 40, but there's no upper limit. Well, maybe we need to say you can't be under 40 or over 65. Like 65 is the oldest that you're allowed to run for office, for presidency. I'd be totally okay with that. Again, you could call it arbitrary, call it what you want. It's going to achieve a better end result to have more generational churn because the only president that we've had that wasn't a baby boomer at this point is Obama. That's it. Now, he was, happened to be a horrible president for a number of other issues, but there's a reason that he got elected and it wasn't just his skin color, I think, because the Republicans kept running geriatrics against him. And that is completely a losing formula, unless the other party does the exact same thing. When you got each party running an 80-year-old against each other, something's wrong, man. They, these are not the parties that uh, are making decisions in the, in the greatest interest of the country, that's for sure. These are people that feel entitled and rewarded for what they've been able to accomplish to have that job. Well, fuck that shit. That's what I say. All right. Next topic. What do we got? So I don't know if there's a whole lot to talk about Ukraine. I've been kind of weaning myself off talking about it because, frankly, I think Ukraine fatigue is setting in even on me. The, the progress that is happening in Ukraine, here, here's the bottom line. The, the people benefiting the most out of what's going on in Ukraine are the arms dealers and manufacturers from the entirety of the world. Everybody is using Ukraine as an opportunity to do real-world testing of a particular type of arm. What, what do you guys think that the U.S. keeps changing 
and updating what they're shipping over. It's it's not because there's a, such a small limited supply of these missiles and other weapons that we have. No, it's because the manufacturers want all to get in on this, on testing their equipment in real-world scenarios. And it's the exact same thing with Russia. Why do you think that there's Chinese weapons? Why do you think there are Iranian weapons that are being utilized? This is not because, oh my God, Russia ran out of weapons. No, Russia has a very good stockpile. They will not be running out anytime soon because part of what Russia has that other, well, the U.S. doesn't, is state ownership of the arms manufacturers. China has the same thing, incidentally. So they can simply make an executive decision and then shift more focus on, meaning hire more people, put, change more factories over to production of any of these missiles and any of this equipment. The way it works in the U.S., and maybe it's not a worse way to do it in the U.S., but it's definitely different, is the U.S. government simply puts out money attached to a winning bid. They put an RFP out and says, okay, we need uh, uh, military equipment that fulfills this need. Here's the contract for each company that will take participate in the trials. We're going to pay X amount, I don't know, $25 million. So $25 million pays for the research, development, and production of test units. And then whoever wins the contract will get like a $200 million contract to actually manufacture it. That process takes a lot longer. It may result in better quality weapons. I'm totally in agreement with that. But it absolutely is a much longer lasting process. And it it benefits the company that did the best job in their prototype. But quite often, the company doesn't have the capacity to actually fulfill the real contract that follows until many years later. Because it's all speculative. You're not going to have four different companies that are all billing, bidding on the same contract all have factories just sitting there ready to start production of all this new equipment. In fact, uh, a lot of the production has to happen in the U.S., but normally they would just outsource everything to China and have Chinese factories that are standing by to make stuff, make it. But when it comes to military equipment, there are certain regulations in place that require at least portions of the military equipment in the U.S. to be manufactured here. So in China, in Russia, they don't have to deal with any of that stuff. It's state-owned, state-controlled, and, and the state can regulate the expansion or contraction. Now, you can certainly say, well, without competition, you get worse equipment. Yeah, probably. I, I'll agree with that. That's a very likely scenario. But you, what you do have is speed of production and change to production. And so Russia will be able to keep manufacturing all the missiles, all the tanks, and all the equipment that they need, that they need to replace for indefinitely, for years and years and years. And also, remember, unlike the U.S., Russia actually has all the raw materials in the country. This is something that U.S. used to have. We had both factories and raw materials, but because of environmental regulations, because of cheaper labor for factories in China, most of those have been shut down in the U.S. So the U.S. actually imports an awful lot of material from China, from even Russia. As we found out, the uranium that is in uh, U.S. nuclear power plants 
actually comes from Russia. The uranium in most of Europe's power plants, like France with all its nukes. Well, it's actually coming from Russia. They're all buying it from Russia because digging out a uranium is a dirty business. So it got outsourced to a country that was willing to do it, and that was Russia. Same thing with like titanium. Russia produces the, the vast majority of titanium in the world. I think there's actually quite a bit also in Australia, but there's very, very little in North America or South America and uh, very, very little in Europe. So they're kind of screwed. They're, the manufacturing of equipment in Russia is much cheaper, cheaper labor, along with locally sourced raw materials. So this, this whole notion that keeps popping up with these supposed military experts in the U.S. that keep saying Russia's almost run out of military equipment, they're almost out of missiles, they're almost out of tanks, they're almost out of all these things, it mostly demonstrates the lack of actual knowledge of the capabilities of Russia by these people. And this is not like secret knowledge. I'm not sharing something that is insider info. You can literally look this up in any kind of, I don't know, there's tons of manufacturing related statistics that you can gather for countries all over the world. This is, this is clearly available. And if, and if you know that the state controls the production facilities, the manufacturing facilities for military equipment, then it, it doesn't really take a genius here to see why Russia isn't going to run out of anything. Ukraine ran out of everything a long time ago. The only equipment being used in Ukraine is equipment coming from the U.S. and Europe. That's it. There, there is nothing that is locally manufactured. They might have, in fact, I think they do have, if I remember seeing it, they do have a small arms factories, like they can produce a small arms ammo. You know, people in this country, in the U.S., have been buying ammo coming from Ukraine as the cheap Russian shit that, that is made with steel case instead of brass because uh, steel is cheaper than brass. It's also, I mean, arguably, if you're not going to reuse it, which is brass's main benefit is you can reuse it because it's malleable. You can stretch it and crimp it. But if you're not going to reuse, uh, you could put much higher pressure loads in steel rounds than you can in brass rounds. So there's actually more conformity of the steel rounds to a wider set of loads than you would from brass. But that's kind of going off on a tangent that I don't need to go off on. There are people that know way more about the manufacture of small arms than I do. That was never a, a big interest of mine. But I know enough to say that. So while they can do that, they, they don't have a tank factory. They don't have missile factories. They did have a whole bunch of drug factories that were conveniently swept under the rug very, very quickly somehow. All these research facilities that we saw the documents authorizing by Congress of grants and uh, the spending of to fund all of these viral research facilities, a.k.a., you know, the same kind of funding that went to Wuhan lab, funding where the U.S. government takes things offshore that it is forbidden to do within the continental United States, which is uh, testing biological weapons. Everybody knows it's being done. It's, it's not a surprise, but everybody's so damn hush-hush about it. Well, you notice there was about two weeks of conversation about that topic in the media, and then it all just conveniently disappeared. It was first said, oh, Russian misinformation, until some of the reporters started showing actual 
congressional documents with funding authorizations for these facilities and copies of checks being cashed at those facilities. So it's like, uh, no, these all existed. And yes, the U.S. government was paying for them. I guess you can argue about what the purpose was. And right away they said, no, these were just research facilities. Well, there was like 12 of them in a fairly small country like Ukraine. You know, Ukraine's about the size of Texas. Yes, it's Texas is a big state, but Ukraine's a freaking country. And it's so it's about the same size as Texas. So having that many research facilities that are experimenting with either level two or level three contaminants, biologicals, is very, very, very suspicious. Now, the interesting thing to me was the Russians very quickly shut up about it as well, which kind of leads me to think that the Russians actually obtained the research information themselves. Because if they didn't, then they should have made a much bigger deal about it and kept on using that as a, a prod against the West doing illegal research. But because they didn't do that, it definitely makes me suspicious of the Russians and what, wait, wait a minute, if you guys stop talking about it, Maybe you got all the data you needed and it's no longer beneficial for you to keep bringing up the idea that both the U.S. and Russia now have all this data about biological agents. Not a pleasant thought because uh, while biological agents are probably the most efficient means of exterminating your enemy, it's also the scariest and most gruesome. And it's one that typically will justify a very strong response. So if there's a, like, either if you end up using chemical weapons, you have to use them on the entirety of your enemy all at the same time. If you don't do that, you are likely to get nuclear retaliation back. So if you manage to get biologicals to wipe out a whole country, then you're probably okay. If you just do it in a city, you're, you're going to win in that city. You're going to take out the city, but you're probably going to end up getting a nuclear response back as a result of that. So the use of biologicals by the U.S. is a very risky procedure because I think even the idiots that we currently have on, they, they realize that uh, the idiots that we have running the country right now realize that any, any use of special weapons in escalation in Ukraine will trigger a nuclear response, as it should. There's nuclear only works as a deterrent if the other side believes that you're capable of using it. And saying that nuclear response is only going to happen as a second strike, meaning the other guys have to do a first nuclear strike, and then we will retaliate for nuclear well, yeah, that's kind of a given. Like, you don't even need to specify that because if you have nukes and you literally don't use them after you've been nuked, then you might as well not bother having nukes and all the expense associated with them. But I think the bigger threat is the escalation to the use of nukes for not nuclear use. And this, this would be, like, I'll give you a couple examples here. For example the use of biological agents by the U.S. in the guise of its allies. The U.S. never takes credit for any of this stuff, but it certainly, it condones the use of biological weapons. And uh, it certainly pays for a lot of research of that count. 
And if you're listening to this and you go, oh, that's bullshit. That's only not true. Just Google what I'm asking or Google the topics that I'm talking about. You, you will very quickly, without even needing to get a hold of me, find articles that you can Google that talk about this. The U.S. is absolutely covertly supporting biological weapon research. Now, so is everybody else. I'm not pointing the finger at the U.S. saying These are, this is the major bad guy. Every country is doing it. China's doing it. Russia's doing it. Basically, every country that can afford to is doing this covertly. And they're doing it all covertly because no country wants to have the finger pointed at saying, oh, well, you guys clearly were the ones planning to use it. We're all innocent. Look, we're all abiding by the non-proliferation of biological weapons uh, agreements here. Yeah, no, everybody's doing it. Because it, it's all an outgrowth of other research in medicine. When you do something that ends up having a mortality, a high mortality result, instead of a cure result, guess what? You just created a biological weapon that your government would like to know how to make use of. So it is definitely happening everywhere, and it is to be expected. But anyway, my point is, Use of biologicals would trigger a nuclear response. A An attack by a third party on Moscow or St. Petersburg, on the two major cities, would probably trigger a nuclear attack. Nuclear response from Russia is um, predicated on a really what would be a perceived existential threat. An existential threat, yeah, I know everybody's heard the term by now, is a threat to the existence. So if the, there is a threat to the existence of Moscow, not even the whole country of Russia, but just that city, or a threat to the existence of St. Petersburg, which is the, the cultural political center of Russia, this is where for the majority of Russian history, well, I shouldn't even say that. That's technically not true. So Moscow actually has a longer time frame than St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg is only 300 years old, which is a drop in the bucket for a country that's about a thousand years old, a little less than that right now. But the, which again is a drop in the bucket for a lot of Chinese cities that like Wuhan, that most people have only heard of in this country as a result of the uh, initial outbreak of the virus there. But Wuhan is literally a 3,000 year old city. It, it has changed an awful lot in those 3,000 years, but it is a city that People have been living around that area permanently for over 3,000 years. And how old is the U.S. right now? 250, roughly, give or take. It'll be 250 in 2026, I think. So, yeah, that's the real drop in the bucket, is just how short of a time the U.S. has been around and how, how much work we all have to do to make sure that it sticks around longer because those original thoughts of the framers of the United States are fast being replaced with a really what I would call the culture that existed during the collapse of the Roman Empire. It's the culture of excess, the culture of sexual depravity, the culture of really focusing in on things that only rich people can focus on. People that are trying to survive don't have time 
to worry about whether they hurt somebody's feelings or not. The priority is not starving to death and not getting killed by your neighbor. The priority is not being careful of misgendering somebody. These are not just first world problems. These are literally problems that were already uh, happening at the collapse of the Roman Empire. This is late stage empire. And the U.S. is going through it in a very short time after the formation of the country. I mean, honestly, the U.S. only been around for 250 years, not even that. And it's already going through those late stage empire stages. But I was talking about use of nuclear weapons. So attack on one of those cities would probably trigger a nuclear response. I think that, I don't think that like political meddling or spycraft would ever trigger a nuclear response because the whole point of doing it that way, doing it sub through subversion and why, in, in fact, the U.S. has historically preferred the method of subversion to the method of direct military uh, conflict is because the subversion, even if it doesn't work, generally doesn't result in much cost to the United States. So you can see the, the total cost of the U.S. going into Afghanistan, staying there for 20 years, and then pulling out as a, I can't remember how many billions it was, but it was an insane amount of billions of dollars. It was a very, very high cost. Now you compare that to the cost of the United States to create a revolution in Ukraine or any of the color revolutions, revolution in uh, Egypt, another good example, that cost was minimal. We're talking nowhere near a billion. That was probably in the 20s of millions range, maybe 50 million at tops to achieve those because they were done through subversion and spycraft rather than through direct frontal military assault. So from a purely financial consideration, if you want to invade a country or change a regime to one that is favorable towards you, it is much, much, much more preferable to do it through subversion than it is through direct military assault. This is also why the U.S. is right now really in a, uh, a bad spot because it's on the verge of having to have direct military intervention in Ukraine. Like, I, and I'm going to just uh, off the cuff here, I'm going to predict it. I think there will be U.S. boots on the ground officially, not as volunteers, not as, as uh, mercenaries. And I think we're going to have actual U.S. brigades, Ukrainian territory, before the end of the year. That's the path we've been going down. That's the path we're likely to end up in because the alternative and one that very few people currently in office want is to just let Ukraine fall. And, and even with the supply of American weaponry, there are literally getting to be, there's, I mean, there's still some right now, but they're getting to be Almost no soldiers on the Ukrainian side left to fight. The majority of the people currently fighting were not actually Ukrainians. They are, and we know this by identifying the death. So by looking at the people that have been killed and when their bodies are recovered from the Russian side, over half of the people killed are not actually Ukrainians. 
Now you can say, wow, that's a huge outpouring of mercenaries. Yeah, could very well be. Or it could be that what we're calling a mercenary is actually a state-sponsored mercenary. Now, what what is a state-sponsored mercenary? Well, it's somebody that's from the the British SAS getting paid a salary in the UK that is taking off their SAS uniform and then putting on a Ukrainian uniform, but is in a detachment of all British soldiers operating British equipment. <clears throat> so that's how we end up with over half the, the dead in Ukraine actually being non-Ukrainians as because um, a lot of countries are doing this. The U.S. is doing it, but I think a little more carefully than other countries. When we ship them new equipment, it, it comes with a, a whole slew of personnel for training purposes. And if you think that none of those people will actually be involved in targeting solutions, you're drinking hopium here because there absolutely are. The biggest thing I think the U.S. has done up to this point is just to have a, a directive out there that said no frontline troop action, like U.S. troops that are part of these training squadrons. They are not allowed by Ukraine to be pushed out into the front lines. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is visibility. It's optics. The U.S. doesn't want to get caught by having a bunch of dead American soldiers being shown on RT, which is incidentally a great reason that RT was instantly banned in the U.S. This idea that some, some news channel, and I don't care where it comes from, it could be Iran, could be China, could be Russia, can be banned by the U.S. It's preposterous. It literally is just spitting on the First Amendment. It's spitting on the idea that the populace should have access to all, including bad information, including information paid for by other state actors. It doesn't matter. It's not about, well, you've got all the truth information here, but we're going to prevent you from accessing false information. The U.S. is not our parents. It is not within the rights of the government to restrict the access of information. Books should not be banned, and they usually are only by Nazis. And that's the way the, the current U.S. administration has been acting in an awful lot of things. And thankfully now the courts who have been pussies on anything related to politics, they're not willing to... They're, they're basically getting out of having to handle any kind of political questions, which is a total pussy move, if you ask me. But at least they're standing up on some of these Biden executive orders and saying, well, no, like Biden can't force every company with over 100 employees to mandate COVID testing. He's not, that's not part of his power to do that. They're, they're reining that in. Same thing should be happening on the ability to lock down certain information channels, whether it's the, the COVID resistance channels out there. The fact that you had the, the, the head of doctors, uh, what was it called? The doctors, I can't remember the name of the group, but it's the guys that were on TV standing up for ivermectin and how the government shouldn't be allowed to prevent them from prescribing anything they want to their patients. It is none of the government's business what kind of medicines are prescribed. It's between the doctor and the patient. 
And, you know, they were totally deplatformed. And in the way, as we've seen with the, the Twitter files, all this deplatforming happens, I shouldn't say all, a chunk, a large chunk of this deplatforming happened because of government intervention and also Democrat Party intervention. So even outside the government, just Democrats intervening on behalf of the party itself. This is ridiculous. That like using private companies to enforce government policies the government is not allowed to actually impose is not a workaround. This is not legitimate. This is not something that is okay. This was not the intent of the founders of the Constitution, of the people that created this country, nor of the people that predominantly for the last 200 years have been running this country. Using workarounds, you know, it's, it's kind of like what the same thing happened with Bush with torture during his administration. The U.S. is officially not allowed to, to use torture. We have policies against utilizing torture for any purpose, including to gather information. Now, some countries use torture not for gaining information, but purely as a means of, of enjoyment and relaxation for their military. Because when you've been fighting against somebody and you win, there's a certain benefit that historically goes along with victory. You get to rape and pillage. You, you get to take the town that you just conquered, plunder it, steal all its bounty, rape its women, and kill its men. And honestly, if that all sounds barbaric, well, you got to remember, this only became barbaric in the last hundred years. Prior to that, going back thousands of years, it was the human norm. This is what we did. Now, the, the percentage of rape happening and the percentage of plunder may have changed. Uh, some people were more vicious and known for their rape. I think Genghis Khan is related to about one-seventh of the globe because he took that side of it very actively. And whenever the, the horde conquered new territory, the, the best-looking women were shipped over for uh, Genghis, Genghis to, however you pronounce that, to personally do with what he wanted to. And as a result, there's a lot of pregnancies and a lot of babies related to Genghis Khan. But nonetheless, that was happening. You know, the victor gets the spoils. It is a very recent phenomenon that this doesn't happen. So anyway, going back to the, the topic of, of uh, the U.S. not allowing to use of torture, what did the U.S. do during Bush with all the, the high-value capture targets? Well, some people would say, well, we sent them to Gitmo. No, 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 no. Gitmo only got a select few and mostly people that we had prior identifiable knowledge of. And those in Gitmo were the lucky ones because they just got waterboarded. The rest of the folks that were captured and interrogated were sent off to black ops sites all over the Middle East and in Eastern Europe. Because guess what, boys and girls, when you join NATO, the U.S. gets to use your country to house political prisoners, people that it doesn't want to bring back to the U.S. because that would give them human rights. But it's much more convenient to bring them to countries of the NATO bloc or our partners, at least for now, although who knows for how long, like Saudi Arabia. 
Saudi Arabia housed a number of these. And what happened was the U.S. efficiently handed over these prisoners of war to the local authorities, thereby cleansing its hands of what happens after that. And those countries don't have these regulations on non-use of torture whatsoever. And so people were literally tortured to death, in some instances to gain certain pieces of information, which may or may not have been true. There is some good stats saying that majority of the information that you gain as a result of torture is actually false, and not false because people are lying trying to cover up, but false because they will literally tell you anything you want to hear to make the pain stop, or sometimes for you to just kill them because that's another way of making the pain stop. Of the people that were delivered to these black sites, we have no idea on the statistics of how many of them ever made it out alive. The presumption is they all, they were well, all killed. So when the U.S. black bagged you and shipped you from Afghanistan or Iraq or a number of other countries that have less popular conflicts and you were shipped off to Saudi Arabia, that was a death sentence. But it was worse than the death sentence because your death wasn't going to be fast. It wasn't going to be something that happens on the battlefield. It's going to be slow by having your teeth extracted, your nails pulled out, electricity applied to your genitals and every other place in your body, by having hot scorching metal pierce your skin and cauterize you so you don't die as fast. The, the amount of creativity that goes into torture is tremendous. It's huge. And countries where torture is not banned, they, this is a profession. This is something you can go to school for. So you really learn how to keep a person alive the longest and suffering the most pain the longest. The U.S., doesn't have schools for that because we don't do that. We're an enlightened country. But we get around things just like we get around everything else. We find a partner that has no problem with torture and we use them. The U.S. is not allowed to do uh, research on biological weapons. Okay, so we just pay other research institutions like the one in Wuhan to do the research on our behalf. And again, what is a biological weapon? It's essentially anything that is the opposite of a cure. Any, any drug that you work on, any kind of procedure or process you work on, that, and, and when I say work on, by the time it gets to the stage of using rats to test it on, if the net result is a higher rate of mortality than no use of the drug, you're creating a biological weapon. You, you can call it anything you want, but that's what it is. A any drug that is in the process of being tested that de determines to actually have a, a high mortality rate is a potential drug that could be utilized as a, a weapon, a biological weapon. And the beauty of it is, is that biological weapons that are coming out of drug farm companies, out of farm pharmacological companies, they are generally close biologically to other similar drugs because everybody starts off with a known thing and then tries tinkering with it. That if you were to say you wanted to just assassinate somebody, like say a president of another country, 
you would probably want to do it as the U.S. in a way that doesn't point the finger directly back at you. And so an easy way to do that is by having that person have a heart attack, which is the result of natural causes. There's a, a number of different drugs that will not appear as anything unusual in a person's body and, and when they do their autopsy that can absolutely lead to a heart attack that will make that person's heart stop. Is that a biological weapon? I think it is by the traditional definition, but, you know, not what most people think of. I think biological weapon, most people think of like, you know, what was that thing that was used in anthrax? Yeah, yeah. That's what most people think of. Anthrax is by no means the only category of biological weapons. There, there are plenty of other ones. So, I know I've kind of went round about a variety of topics here, but these are all things that just hadn't made it to conversations, any of the other podcasts I've been doing, and uh, also to update for what's coming up on here. So I appreciate you guys subscribing. As usual, the best thing you can do to help me grow the podcast is to do a review in either Google or Apple. I think that's the two big ones in their podcasting sites. And just mention that you enjoy the show and the types of topics it covers. That helps other people uh, find out about it, learn about it, yada, yada, yada. No illusions that I'm ever going to be like a, a huge podcaster. I'm doing this for fun, guys. And that's another reason I don't really collect money. <laughs> I don't ask for money is because I'm doing this because I enjoy it. I, I, I like putting out content like this. I like having the conversation keep going. Even if you guys hear this, not in real time after I said it, but eventually later, it, you still respond. You still have thoughts. You still maybe do something or think differently as a result of it. These are all awesome things. And, and I certainly think it's well worth doing the podcast, even though I'm, I'm technically losing money on every episode. But it's not really a lost money. It's, it's, an, it's money I'm paying to enjoy myself. It's money I'm paying to have fun. So a few hundred bucks a year is uh, fine for me for doing that. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. And like I said, we've got some interviews coming up. So stay tuned for those. And have a good evening, afternoon, or morning whenever you listen to this. And as always, thanks for joining me. Please do keep in mind that nothing in this podcast represents financial, legal, or medical advice. 